guest today is Mal Hyman. He is a professor of sociology at Coker College in Hartsville, South Carolina. He's also author of the book, Burying the Lead, the Media and the JFK Assassination. As we move forward into 2022, I will be creating more content about politics and policy in the United States. I'm calling this series of reports, Political Woman, because I am a political woman and I vote. I want all my sisters to join with me. Honestly, I really feel it's my duty to create these reports, to interview as many people as possible, because it's my honor to have been a political reporter. I have years of experience and I want to continue to contribute and to share that experience because I'm not dead yet. Also, we are at a critical time in my country. It's important to talk about what's happening. We have rich versus poor, right versus left, Republican versus Democrat, and unfortunately, white versus black or brown. Through this all, we are not talking to each other. More and more, we do not talk with people we don't agree with. We've forgotten how to debate, how to compromise, forgotten how to have a great conversation. If we have an uncle who's a right-winger and only watches Fox News, we do not talk to him. It's too painful. It's too uncomfortable. And he feels the same about liberal relatives. But we must talk about politics and policy. It's important to understand the process. Otherwise, rich corporations donate hundreds of thousands of dollars to the candidate who is going to give them tax breaks. And the rich keep getting richer and the rest of us are screwed. I understand why many people just give up. We are busy making a living, raising kids, living life. Life gets in the way. I understand. That's why I'm here. <laughs> I don't have a life. <laughs> but I love doing this, and it's important. So let's get on with my one-on-one -on -one with Mal Hyman. We began by talking about this election year. In 2022, all members of the U.S. House of Representatives are up for re-election. One-third of United States senators are running for re-election. Our rightfully elected president, Joe Biden, is a Democrat. In past midterms, many times, the president loses control of Congress. Usually, the party out of power, not in the White House, picks up seats in the House and in the Senate, somewhere between 20 and 35 seats on average. Uh, so unless there are great successes from the Democrats maybe passing Build Back Better, you could expect Republicans to control uh, the House uh, where the Democrats have a four-vote margin. And in the Senate, it's now 50-50. Republicans would be controlling the Senate. Uh, the Democrats are hoping that the economy turns around, gets even stronger, that the pandemic subsides, and that Build Back Better gets passed in some more limited fashion, and Democrats can claim success for it. Otherwise, I think the standard predictions are probably right uh, that Republicans will take over the House and the Senate. One other thing with redistricting every 10 years, uh, we're going to see some different races that are out there uh, because districts have changed. And there's a certain irony in that states that are blue states, Democratic states, there have been a number of nonpartisan redistricting commissions 
so that some of the Democratic advantage in blue states in drawing districts has been limited. Those changes for nonpartisan redistricting commissions have not happened in Republican states. So ironically, Democrats who wanted more fair districts have been hurting themselves, and that'll come to play. That might be eight to 10 congressional seats that will probably favor Republicans for these midterm elections. We'll see more money spent for these midterm elections than ever before as the price of running for Congress and the Senate continues to rise. The race for the U.S. Senate in South Carolina in 2020, both parties spent over $100 million. So an awful lot of promises made to the very wealthy, and it's the wealthiest 1% that put in about 90% of the money in elections and turn democracy more into an auction. Did the Democrats fall asleep at the wheel here, or is it because of a, a Republican legislature, uh, state legislatures? Is that, is that who's in charge, or state governors? Yeah, this is a tough question. So every 10 years after uh, the census is taken, there's redistricting, because right. in Congress, you have to have similar number of people in each district, and that's Supreme Court 1964. Right. So in doing that, you have to change the shape of the districts the party in power in the state house, usually the state Senate Judiciary Committee does that. And if Democrats are in control, usually, times past, it would favor Democrats on redistricting. Conversely, if Republicans are in power, they make the redistricting to, to benefit them. What's different this time is the big push nationally for more fair districting than the partisan districting of Democrats helping Democrats, Republicans helping Republicans. And the irony is that if you have a nonpartisan commission drawing the district lines, like former superintendents of schools or retired judges or retired business people, that they will do a more fair job, but they're doing the more fair job in states controlled by Democrats. So the Democratic advantage in those states is non-existent. Whereas the Republican advantage in Republican-controlled states continues as it used to be. And that'll be an additional eight to 10 seats, the experts say, uh, that'll help Republicans in the House of Representatives. This won't affect the Senate, but it'll affect the House. So I think it's a fair prediction, unless the economy rebounds, unless we get the pandemic under control, unless Build Back Better gets passed somehow, Republicans will be controlling the House and the Senate, which means Biden will probably have a really tough time getting any of the rest of his legislation through and will be ruling more by executive orders. Why is Biden so unpopular? I think he's doing a great job. I mean, I thought the infrastructure, the signing of that was just huge. Well, the infrastructure bill was a big success and the biggest we've had since the 1950s. And the Chamber of Commerce has wanted this for 25 years. And this will put a lot of people back to work. And the longer we waited, the more dangerous and expensive it was. So there's no question about it. He deserves a lot more credit for it. Democrats didn't sell it well. You have to make clear what it accomplishes. Further, we have a a fractured media landscape 
and on Fox Talk Radio and many of the blogs, people didn't give credit to Biden for working in a bipartisan way to bring in Republicans to try to pass the legislation. And it's successful. But people aren't seeing the results from it yet. Right. We're dealing with a rapidly changing virus and a pandemic where any legislation is seen as suspect because you're taking away people's freedom in order to protect public health. We're not seeing any democratically elected government have a decent time during this pandemic. All those who are in power, conservatives, moderate, liberals, and socialists, are having a tough time because people don't like their freedom taken away, they're scared, it's easily weaponized, and whatever public health concerns are met with legislation, they're oftentimes heavy-handed or they don't go far enough. Further, if you can't handle the pandemic very well, it's going to hurt the economy and people are notoriously short-sighted. It's kind of the United States of amnesia. So people have forgotten about the infrastructure bill. They're worried about the pandemic, their loss of freedom, where the economy's out right now. And in this media landscape where people on Fox or talk radio demonize the Democrats as the enemy of the people, as those who are destroying democracy, within that context, a lot of folks don't see the infrastructure bill for the success that it was or take a look specifically about Build Back Better and how it would create millions of jobs and help American working families in a number of ways, from childcare, schools, to moving in a growth area of the economy that's absolutely necessary uh, with taking care of the environment on climate change. These are ideas that have long been successful in Europe. Moderates and conservatives in Europe have long ago passed the Build Back Better version in their countries, but it's pretty well demonized. Uh, by right-wing media in the United States, and it's unfortunate that it's not getting that hearing. So that's my general take on why I think Biden, who tries to strike conciliatory, bipartisan tones and has lowered the heat in the country, hasn't created enough light that he's given some credit for being a practical moderate. Really, I think sometimes now it all comes back to PR. It all comes back to messaging and making mistakes and not being able to connect with people. To start with Biden selling his program better, you're absolutely right. He needed to be doing it constantly so that it breaks through in media outside of the corporate-owned mainstream media that largely is supportive of these policies that does have somewhat of a fair hearing. Now, notice they don't talk about $15 an hour for minimum wage, that's not up there. And the, the mainstream media didn't talk about $7.8 trillion for military spending over 10 years. Most people didn't even know that major bill passed through. And some of that money could have been used for social spending or hospitals uh, or, or a number of other social programs from education to housing. So that doesn't get covered. At this point, the military, the Pentagon, has not been able to pass an audit the last five years. So there's so many billions of dollars sloshing around that the old conservative argument 
that the Bob Doles and John McCain talked about. Make sure that you're spending the money properly that is going where you anticipate it. And then there's the question of how much do you actually need to defend the United States? But leaving those military expenditure questions aside, which are critical and don't get covered by the mainstream media, you're right, the Chinese and the Russians have interfered in our election. Whether it's half a percent or two percent, it's tough to tell. But clearly, it's been going on. Election integrity is there. And we haven't, we haven't guarded our own elections very well. And we still have about 70 percent of the Republican Party that thinks the election was stolen by Democrats, even though it went through 62 different legal appeals. And it clearly wasn't stolen. You may not like Biden, but it's, it seems uh, unfair, unwise, and anti-democratic to say that the election was stolen. So we've got- I think it's like almost, it's like hysteria now. They repeat a lie, you know, over and over and over again. I mean, Hitler did it, Goebbels did it. They did a great job at it, other dictators do it. You just repeat this lie over and over and over again, and then people who don't want to read or know anything better listen to Fox News and believe it. It's a sad lament that you're right about that. And uh, Goebbels and, and the Nazis, and Mussolini did this too. You don't have adversaries, you have enemies. They're enemies of the people. And that's what the press has been called the last six years, the enemy of the people by, by a number of those. Now it's basically the Republican Party that's right. saying that. Right. So instead of First Amendment, freedom of the press being a pillar of freedom, uh, we have a demonization of a political party and a demonization of the press but further, there is a big lie, whether it's on the election being stolen uh, or that the, the Democrats are stealing and destroying democracy, repeated, and a lot of people fall prey to it. Goebbels understood that the big lie repeated oftentimes takes on a life of its own. You tend to uh, do use constant repetition. So to say that Democrats are tax and spend liberals when really in order to have an infrastructure plan, you have to pay for it. And most of it's paid for by the, the very wealthy or the Build Back Better that's paid for primarily by the very, very wealthy or corporations that haven't paid taxes. But to frame it as a tax and spend liberal idea that's going to bankrupt the country this is meant to scare people, and it's right out of the Nazi propaganda playbook of the 1930s, sad to say on it. And it's effective with the number of people that are considered low-information voters that don't read what the other side has to say and then, then try to sort it out for themselves. We read less as a nation. I'd say we're into a post-literate period where people don't read newspapers as much, their reading is less. You see it with students at the colleges. It's a standard lament of professors. We read less, and reading is something that was essential in the founding of the republic, that people saw that as, as necessary for protecting democracy. You have to, to read widely ranging sources mm -hmm. in order to figure out where the truth is. Mm -hmm. You can't trust just one source. It's such a pity, too, because I just am amazed every day how accessible information is, all forms of information.
Well, and a lot of people have a strong confirmation bias. They don't want to read anything uh, that will confront their, their basic mind. ideas, right? Because it's threatening, it's anxiety producing. It comes back to the fear that you were talking about, mm -hmm. the fear that I might be wrong. And then my friends might be wrong. What else am I wrong about? Right. The, po the political beliefs that I have, it's very threatening to people yes. to, to examine different ideas. We also tend to read less. Average American reads four books a year. Two of them are romance novels or mysteries. So we tend to read less and I think become less literate because of it. Further, there's a plethora of material that's out there on the internet, but some of it's bathroom graffiti in terms of politics. Mm -hmm. And some of it's really, really insightful. And you gotta be able to separate the wheat from the chaff. The more experience and politics you've talked and read, the better you're able to separate the wheat from the chaff mm -hmm. and be able to follow better sources of your news. And democracy isn't easy. That's why it generally falls apart. And those who are the most aggressive are able to take it over. I mean, democracy is like a hothouse flower and you have to protect it. Benjamin Franklin said that when asked about what type of government we have, he said a democracy, if we can keep it. Jefferson said the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. And we got a lot of distractions so people don't take their democracy as seriously as they need to in order to protect it. I have hope the younger generation is asking a different set of questions. They don't tend to dig in with trying to change things yet. They don't read a lot yet. But if you look at their instincts on sexual relations, on race relations, on who has power in America, they're asking a good set of questions. I think that's cause for optimism. Yeah. And it's, it's a constant challenge yeah. for us to bring a better society. I think Martin Luther King and Gandhi had it right. These are all experiments in democracy. Nothing is to be taken for granted. And I'm afraid a lot of folks now have taken it for granted and it's slipping away and it's slipping away faster during a pandemic and we're not seeing questions on climate change the way we need to to protect ourselves. And I want to take you back to the time when I started teaching in state prison in California in 1977. There were over 400 street gangs in LA back then. I was hearing all these stories about what cops were doing. And even if you discount three-fourths of what you hear in a prison, you're still hearing those stories over and over again. So cop cams and cell phones have brought to the general public stuff that's been going on for a long time. And I think only when it gets to the public and we talk about it, do we have a chance for healing. And I think some of that national dialogue is going on. Wish it would have gone along earlier. That's why I tried to go into teaching to accelerate the dialogue on it, but it's it's not easy. It's a slow-moving dialogue. It's why it's so important for podcasts like yours to get out to a, a range of people to broaden the dialogue that we're seeing. Tribalism that you talked about plays itself throughout society, and people have not been taught the skills to listen closely to the other side to respectfully disagree, mm -hmm. as Jefferson would have said, agree to disagree agreeably. Uh, I think it's a learned skill. Yeah. And there's been a coarsening of political discourse, not just through Fox and talk radio and blogs, but through the, uh, the polarization of the political parties. We're not seeing good models on TV coming from Congress on this. Mm -hmm. 
all of which leaves people distrusting and disliking the other side, so they're less willing to enter into longer dialogues, which are absolutely critical for democracy to flourish. Yes. You have to be able to talk to the other side long enough to find the common ground yes. to then move forward. And I think there is some common ground that, that isn't typically framed, like most people believe in equal opportunity, but they also believe in hard work. Well, conservatives will, will focus on hard work, liberals on equal opportunity, kind of yin and yang. You got to have both of them, and it ought to be framed as such. You know, a lot of Republicans and conservatives deep down want to have clean air, clean water. They don't want their family to be polluted. And they and care asked, about their kids, their kids in the future for the children. Yeah, Obama was pretty good at, at doing that, um, but... We are running into the tribalism and a fractured media landscape and Fox that does not play by the old set of rules, which didn't get us where we needed to go because it was a corporate-owned media that wouldn't talk about inequality or wages or military spending. Yeah. But but that was far, far better than what Fox is doing and what talk radio has done, especially when the fairness doctrine was ended where you didn't have to give equal weight to both sides. An awful lot of people still stuck in poverty, living in despair. I remember talking to inmates and I asked them, at what point did you just not give a damn about anything? And they'd say at the age of 10, 11, and 12. Well, people at that point are gonna slip into crime, bitterness, use weapons, society becomes more violent, and they didn't pick their parents, their community, their schools, or their country. It's you know, tough we have when you're hungry. We, you know, it's tough when you're poor and when you're cold. You know, again, listening to each other long enough to hear those stories uh, so that we start to come up with some sort of, of way of confronting it. So I, I hold hope because now the glass is, is three-fourths full and I'm acutely aware of during a period of tribalism, the pandemic, a global economy, and climate change that's still one-fourth empty. And there's a lot of bitterness in the country. And, you know, I, I think an honorable dialogue is, is the way to, to move forward. And it's slow. We're not taught democracy. I can tell you as a college professor who sees students coming in from high school, they memorize the right answers to the questions to pass the test. And then they don't remember them three months later when they're in a government class let alone actually learning the skill of talking with someone who disagrees with you completely mm -hmm. and having a reasonable, respectful dialogue, which I think is necessary for democracy, but something that we can do. Well, John Boehner said the, the Republican Party was hijacked and that yeah. a lot of this crowd is not interested in accomplishing anything. No. They're interested in blowing up Washington. No, you know what and that came in. from the Republican leader. We've forgotten our history. We, you and I have talked about this before, but the country was founded in courage and compromise. Now, it's all about money. All they want to do is be rich. Fox News, all those guys, this is not journalism, and it's not politics, it's not government. It's all about money. That's what's going on, and it's sickening. Labor Day. I want everyone to take a look at what the media doesn't cover on Labor Day. Do they talk about unions? Let alone unions. I agree with you. They won't talk about unions on Labor Day. They also don't tend to talk about any worker that's getting minimum wage. 
so that most of the poor in this country, 85% of them are working, and you can't live on your own even if you work a 45-hour week, you have a chance to live on your mother's couch. That ought to be discussed on Labor Day, and the fact that it isn't even one day out of the year is indicative of corporations that control the legacy media, that don't ask those economic questions that would give dignity to people. Let alone what happened on the last big $2 trillion tax break where 85% of it wealth went to the wealthiest 1%. I mean, that should have been explored in depth that this was a giveaway to the rich. And it's why we have the worst inequality since 1928. And we've still got poor people, middle class people storming the capital. Those guys, by no means millionaires. Yeah, who's doing the dirty work for Trump? And, and did he rile them up? Yes. Was he guilty? Yes. Was he guilty of aiding yes. and abetting when everyone told him, step into the middle of it and try to stop it? And why aren't the Republicans in Congress and the Senate trying to at least get to the bottom line on what happened during an attempted coup in the United States? You know, another 20,000 people in the streets and they take a number of senators and Mike Pence, and the Pentagon comes yes. in and crushes them all. But that's really what we could have been yes. looking at. Pence, it was yes. an attempt at yeah. a coup d'etat yes, in an election. Yeah. I think that's a vital investigation for democracy, it needs to be covered more clearly. And while the Republicans didn't want to have impeachment hearings, I think it was clearly an impeachable offense. And we need to get to the bottom line of what happened with that who was responsible. And I think the Republic pays an incredible price if when there is a crisis of national security and we don't go back and find out what happened to who killed John Kennedy, who killed Martin Luther King, who killed Robert Kennedy, what really happened with the October surprise, what really happened with 9-11, what really happened with January 6th. And if you don't find out what's going on, myth piles upon myth and it makes it tougher for the public to know what reality is and to make good decisions in a democracy. Right. There's supposed to be an oversight power in Congress, a system of checks and balances needed by the founding fathers, necessary for democracy. Sunlight is the best remedy. You need to have the system of divided government. And if they can't have a real investigation of an attempted coup d'etat, that speaks to where our democracy is yeah. at. I completely agree with you. At this point, we switched gears and began discussing Mal Hyman's book, Burying the Lead, the Media, and the JFK Assassination. We also discussed a new documentary by Oliver Stone, JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass. I highly recommend the book and the documentary, which is on Showtime. Oliver Stone chronicles the lies and the massive cover-up of President John F. Kennedy's assassination. As a teacher, I could see in the classroom whenever I talked about the Kennedy assassination, everybody was listening. They were appalled at what was, ha was happening. Uh, it was a teachable moment. It was a case study in power. So I've gone to conferences for about 35 years on it, followed it as closely as I could, taught a class on political assassinations. And I think what moved me forward on it is somebody in the class said, I know the congressman that headed the House Select Committee on Assassinations that reopened the Warren Commission report. And when I talked to him, he was a great guy, uh, former judge. At the end of a two-hour conversation, he said, my committee 
needed another year, needed another $10 million, and the CIA, the military, and the FBI did not cooperate with my committee. Keep up the good work. And it was one of those political epiphanies, and I thought, I gotta stay with this. What I added a little bit differently as I looked at whether the media did their job or not, independent media, as well as establishment or legacy media. And they did not, and I was able to just follow it through, and they're still not covering it 58 years later, and 58 years later, we still don't have all the files released on the Kennedy assassination. The movie JFK picked the case back up in 1991, but essentially, Congress had failed. The church had failed. The mass media had failed. The case was drifting into history. It was a filmmaker that kept it alive. Over a million letters to Congress after the movie JFK, and they reopened the investigation with an assassination record and review board that released almost five million pages of documents that Congress hadn't seen. And this is through the 1990s. Well, the press wasn't covering it very much at that point. And actually now enough of the files are released that we need to look at that because while there was a coup attempt on January 6th, there was a coup in the United States in November of 1963 with the assassination of John Kennedy. This is a body blow to democracy and the mass media still isn't covering it the way it needs to. In fact, award-winning reporters from the Washington Post like Carol Lenig or Dan Abrams from ABC write books and could talk about the, the nature of the case from the point of view of the Secret Service or of the FBI, and they don't look at the new information that was released after the movie JFK. You know, it's interesting to note that Oliver Stone put out a new documentary, JFK Revisited, 30 years after the film, and it's by far the best documentary on the case, and I couldn't recommend it more strongly. This new documentary came out a month ago. Jim DiEugenio, a top researcher, is the writer with Oliver Stone, and it goes through methodically why any rational, common-sense conservative would see that the evidence on this case doesn't add up, that there was more than one shooter, and that the government is suppressing the files. And we know that foreign policy was changed after John Kennedy was killed, prosecution of the mafia was changed, uh, President Kennedy was reigning in the FBI, he was reigning in the CIA, he was cutting military spending, all of that changed after the assassination. Kennedy was trying to reign in the banks, he was standing up uh, to what was going on with international banking. That was changed after he was assassinated. Kennedy was taxing the, the oil companies, is trying to end the oil depletion allowance, a 27% tax cut for finding oil. He thought it was excessive, that that tax cut should be ended under LBJ, who was a creature of big oil. That change also was uh, stopped uh, after the assassination. So the country took a radically different path after Kennedy was killed. We took a wrong turn. This is the real nightmare on Elm Street, and, and our democracy has not recovered from it. Attractive evidence on the single bullet. I mean, once you start to break the case down, the Manicar Carcano, the supposed murder weapon, the cheap scope was, that was on it, the lack of powder burns on Oswald's face, 
Oswald's connections to the FBI and CIA. Anybody who is following this, just looking at it as a murder case, will realize, oh my gosh, we aren't close to the bottom of this. And this was the assassination of a popular president likely to be reelected in 1963, who was murdered with a public execution, and we still haven't gotten to the bottom of it. People start to ask different questions about why was the guy who Kennedy fired after the Bay of Pigs, the failed invasion of Cuba in 1961, Alan Dulles, who headed the CIA, why was Dulles selected by Johnson to be on the Warren Commission? Why is it that one of the people that was fired after the Bay of Pigs, General Cabell's brother, who was the mayor of Dallas, who was working with the CIA, manipulating the media. Why aren't we looking at those stories? And 58 years later, the press could be taking on these basic questions about democracy that they have elected to not go that direction. I'm Gloria Moraga. This is One on One with professor and author Mal Hyman. Please visit my website, GloriaMoraga.com, for more on this story. In my blog, you can find links to the videos, some transcripts, and more. I'm Gloria Moraga. I am a political woman, and I vote. Please join me. Please share. Please subscribe. Take care. Be safe.